This is Dr. Tori Weaston Certain, and you are listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, family? I hope that you all are doing well. I'm super excited because today I have Dominique Morgan, an award-winning artist, activist, and TEDx speaker on the podcast today. What's good, Dominique? What's happening? What's going on? Everybody's trying to survive through this Rona. That's what's going on. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's a, I, I would say day to day, but sometimes it feels hour to hour where we're at. Um, but, um, I think, you know, we just hold on to this fact that we as people, and when I say we as people, we as black folks, um, have survived so much and we, we definitely will get to the other side of this. So that I hold on to that. Definitely for sure. Um, I said in an intro that I was excited to talk to you and I really am that sincere because I just feel like you have so much to offer the youth work world. (laughs) And that's why I wanted to reach out to you very early on for this podcast, you are doing work as National Director of Black and Pink. Can you tell us mm-hmm. more about Black and Pink and more about your role uh, at Black and Pink? Yes. So Black and Pink, um, historically, we are a uh, an agency based in abolitionist values, and we do work to dismantle systems of oppression that will encroach on queer people, people in the LGBTQ plus spectrum, or folks who identify as living with HIV and or AIDS. Um, and, and that system of oppression thing seems really large, but um, a lot of people think that we just address mass incarceration or people who are incarcerated. Um, and my belief is that I'm too late if I don't get to you until you're inside of an institution. Um, so I want us to be doing that work that can be strategic and, and, and see how these systems come together that position people to be incarcerated, um, to be when, when we, when they are released to recidivate, um, to, to, to experience health disparities, um, those type of things. So, um, that's how our work shows up. Uh, I am the, when I came in, I was the national director and I, I, it was, I try to give people a lot of grace, um, but people would assume that I reported to someone when I had that oh, title. Okay. Um, and so I changed my title to executive to re- director um, last year because I was like, okay, you should be able to figure out like I'm the head of the agency. Um, but I, I kept running into that, like, well, who do you report to? Or, um, oh, you just run this part here in Omaha. And I'm like, no. They wanted me for this job so badly, they let me move the entire company to Omaha. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's the role I'm in now as executive director. And I think my job is really is, is to be a curator and to create a culture. Like I, I, I look at, I think about what I know I'm great at. I think about what I'm not so great at. I get out of my way and throw my ego away around what I'm not so great at. And I try to find that greatness in other people and pull them into the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my job is to create a space where they can be dope and excel and and then create a space, I hope, long term 
to really shift how we address providing services for folks who have been system impacted. Yeah, absolutely. I hear a lot of people in our field talking about systems impacted, and I feel mm-hmm. like you are one of those people that's actually doing the work. Can you tell me, uh, and you can tell me no, but tell me if you feel comfortable tell, telling us a little bit about your story, because I feel as folks who are doing mentoring work, doing youth work of any sort, um, when I look at your story, read your, your website, et cetera, I'm like, this is one of these young people we say we want to serve that we didn't do a good job of serving, per se. So can you talk a little bit about your own background and yeah. in the interest of informing you know, people's youth work? Yeah, for sure. I think, so I was a young person that I left my parents' home uh, the first time when I was 12. I went into a, like, mental health facility because they were like, you know, he's behaving poorly, there are things happening, so on and so forth, and and it was like, this has to be, like, just strictly around behavior health. Um, And then an odd thing really happened to me was that um, I grew up, you know, parents were amazing. Um, I'm the oldest of four, but I just felt very oppressed in my home. Um, not very, I didn't, what I've learned is that everyone wants to understand where they fit in, whether it's where you fit in in your, in your, in your family, whether it's where you fit in on your block, whether it's where you fit in in, in, in community. People need to know um, and they need to understand it. And if they're missing it, those of us are those of us around them that know where we fit in should be doing the work to support them in finding where they fit in. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where I fit in. I was the oldest. I was um, I looked like, you know, my, I would kind of I essentially wear my father's face. Um, I had his name, you know, at birth. So I was the third. There was all these things that just felt uncomfortable. So initially being taken out of the home wasn't. I didn't understand how the trauma hit me because I felt a little bit of freedom. Hmm. What I didn't know is how through youth systems and through this gaze of whiteness in which we facilitate work through youth systems, that they would perpetuate this idea that my parents weren't good parents Hmm. Um, and that they would jump on a 13 year old's desire to just kind of be free and rebel, which is natural. Um, and, and really like feed that thought in myself. And so I ended up going to a group home called Boys and Girls Home and this was in South Sioux City, Nebraska. And it was two hours away from Omaha where I'm born and raised, but I'm a kid who hadn't left my block. And it was a shock. I had not seen lockdown sales or I would see the medication cart come in and, and to look at the number of pills they were giving these young people or you know, you would be on the housing unit with guys and they'd get there and they'd be cool and they put them on these meds and you talk to them and you wouldn't see light in their eyes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a huge shock to me. I, I, it was the first time I had met people who um, had had caused harm via sexual violence that were children. Um, all these things. And we would sit in. It was my first experience with therapy. <clears throat> and it was so it was so harmful to me. Um, these group circles that they would put us in and we would have to account, hold each other accountable and put each other in holds and all of these things. And at the same time, I'm this black queer kid. You know, I, I can say I came out there, um, but it was really just out of desperation of 
they were trying to find what was wrong with me. And I didn't think anything was wrong with me. And so my bone to them was, well, I, I am gay. Like, let's get into that. Um, at the time, like that was my identity. Um, and I was there for about a year, came back home. We lasted for about six months with me being back home. And what I know now, and I, in the work that we do, um, I work on a project called the Juvenile Lived Experience Project here in Omaha with some amazing people looking at the impact of the system on youth and families mm -hmm. from a transformative justice lens. They taught me how to not need my parents. No one took the time to teach me how to need my parents again. Mm. Um, the system did a great job of dismantling. We weren't the perfect family, but those ties that bind, um, even things as simple as, you know, my mother doing my laundry. When I was gone, I had to learn how to do everything for myself and cook and all these other things. So when I came home, the things my mother wanted to do to show me that she cared about me, to engage in like her role as my mom, yeah. right? Again, who fits in? What, what, who are we? What do we do? I was like, I don't need you for that anymore. I know how to wake myself up in the morning. I know how to do this, this, and the third. And it sent ripples through my family because I was already a child that was very independent. But then I was a child that was independent and had lived. And you know, for people who are listening, if you've went away for school or you just moved out of your parents' home and, and you've ever had to go back, you know that vibe of, yeah, I'm back, mom, but I'm grown. You can't really tell me nothing or whatever. Well, imagine feeling that way at 15. Hmm. Imagine feeling, knowing that you've lived on your own because that's how that these programs work is that these kids are in these facilities and they, Literally, with some of the language they would use is we're going to break you down to build you back up. Mm. It was a program called Stars where we rode horses and they would walk me through how to, like, take care of a horse. But while they were doing it, they were telling us how you break horses to make them better. And they would they would compare us to horses wow. in this conversation. Um, and so I came home and there was a struggle. So I left again, went into foster care, ended up in several um, group homes. Um, and finally ran away from there one last time. They put me in juvenile detention. They decided to end my, end my juvenile detention situation. Cause I had no, I wasn't, I hadn't committed any charges. Right. Um, and so the judge was like, why is this kid here? We're going to end it. But then I just instantly went back home. And I want to say maybe it was another 90 days before I moved out of my parents' house with my boyfriend who was five years older than me and into an extremely abusive situation. I was 16, turning 17. And um, lasted with him a while as much as I could handle it. And a really violent moment happened between us where I almost died. And um, then I was on the streets from 17 to 18, um, and then fall of 2000, I was arrested um, for all of these survival crimes that I was committing while I was experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. I was facing about 30 felonies, pled to um, three of them, three of them, and they sentenced me. I was, I had, I was 19 at that point because I had sat sat in county jail for a year, um, and they sentenced me to eight to 16 years in Nebraska's Department of Corrections. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm listening to your story. And one of the things I noted was how you talked about the system that claims to 
be an intervention in terms of helping people actually dis- did more to disrupt your family system than it did to keep your family Absolutely. system together. And when I think about, Absolutely. again, how nonprofits talk and how we have these cross-sector, cross-sector collaborations where we're like, oh, let's get juvenile justice involved and let's get these people involved and not, I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt, not really knowing that the system that they are asking to step in is going to create more harm than help. Well, and, and let's be clear on a couple of things. One, there was, it's so interesting that there are people who work within these systems that, that position themselves as experts. Mm -hmm. And then you get in the world and you realize like some of the people that I know, is this a child friendly show? (laughs) Some of the people that I, some of the people that I know that have the most messed up lives, as in they're trying to figure it out every day, mm-hmm. are social workers, like like the people who are in those jobs, and that's not a problem because we're all doing that. But I remember thinking like this person is going to train me how to be the perfect adult because they're the perfect adult. So there was there's no there's this thing of and that's what I go I feel like that's the insidious piece of the white supremacy of it all is that right. there's a history of taking black children and, and and saying that black families cannot develop strong, independent, impactful young people um, in, in very black spaces that you have to go to these white spaces or you have to use systems or curriculum or knowledge from a white perspective to right. do that. So that's one piece. And the other piece is there's an audacity to take possession of a child's body and not intentionally raise that child. I am not a person who sees myself as a parent, right? When my mother died, I, I, I had been, I was home from prison for six months before my mother passed away. And my youngest sister was 12. I took her in really as a deathbed promise to my mother, but I'm not a person that wanted a kid. And I remember those six years with Andrea, like literally we counted those days down. Baby, we getting you to graduation, right? I know in my heart of hearts, I'm not that person. So what would I look like today taking five kids in my house, knowing that I don't want to, I would engage with them. I would make sure they're fed. But the intentionality it takes to pour into children, especially children who've experienced trauma, that's looking back. Those are the times when I'm just like, that's where that's where your harm started. Mm-hmm. You had the audacity to do this work and not be intentional consistently. How can in, how can two or three people working a shift take care of 30, 40 kids under the best conditions? Right. Um, and, and so you, you look back. And so, yes, absolutely, Tori. It's this idea of there's more harm happening than than opportunities for healing. Right. And. I do believe there's an intentional dismantlement of family structures simply because of the way that parents and youth have to navigate systems. I I was going through my father's papers the other day. And for black folks listening, you know, this idea of one of like a child having the daddy's name is really important. Right. Because that meant that that meant something. Yeah. And and my father was, you know, my parents got married right out of high school. Uh, my father experienced a terrible experience with his dad. So my dad's big thing was I'm my dad. Did, you know, he maybe told me he loved me like five times my whole life. But my daddy worked every day. My daddy was came home every day. Right. Took care of us. And I found a receipt that they were making my father pay child support. 
because I was in the system. And I didn't know this. You know, I, I'm not knowing as a kid that my parents were already experiencing poverty, right? Like my dad's income is taking care of, you know, my mother and my siblings. And they're going through all these things. And they're also garnishing money out of my dad. Dad's pay for this kid, for me. And then looking back, they didn't give me anything. Wow. They wouldn't take they me shopping. I wasn't getting new clothes. I wasn't, I wasn't getting haircuts like and so it was, and so I know what that my, what that must have done to my daddy to, to have that, you know, one of those signs of I'm a man, I'm taking care of my children. And, and so there was just, I look back and there's so much where I see there was, in, there was, there was intentional behaviors that created roadblocks. And unfortunately, I didn't know better and my family didn't have the access to have advocates like yourself who could have come in and said, yo, this ain't right. Yo, how you can't just throw this kid back. This kid's been going out of this house for a year and a half. How are you just going to put this kid back in this ecosystem? Um, so, so yeah, it's, that's a, that's a truth that I, I won't back down from. Yeah. And as I hear you talk, it, it actually naturally leads to my next question about resilience. So I watched your Ted talk. Um, about resilience. And, and I hear this concept discussed a lot among youth workers, this, this need for youth resilience. I also hear critical researchers who are saying, you know, our young people are already resilient. I mean, the fact that they've survived in the face of white supremacy means they're resilient, right? So can you talk to me, talk more about how you see the concept of resilience and, and weigh in on that debate around uh, marginalized youth becoming more resilient? Yo, Anyone who's done like a TED talk, TED, TEDx thing, you have to memorize everything. And and so this was like, if y'all follow me on social media, y'all know I'll talk about signs. I'm a Pisces. And so everything is like meant to be. So 2008, 2018, I do my vision board. I put resilience on the vision board as big as day because that was my goal for life is to be resilient. The year goes through. That was my first year being an ED. I learned so much. 2019 comes, I apply for this TEDx thing. I don't know the topic. The topic is them resilience. And I remember like writing this out because they want you to memorize everything. And then I went home and I was watching Deadpool. And I was like, this is the most resilient person ever. You literally can like blow their head off and they're going to bounce back. But he ain't thriving. This man is doing it. This this man put his body through all these things to, to be with the woman he loved. And he's resilient all day, but still unhappy, still unfulfilled. And it hit me in the middle of the night. And I literally rewrote, rewrote my, my, my tech talk because I was like, I am tired of being resilient. I am that tired part. of that being my glass ceiling. And I feel like at some point they... Resilient is a consolation prize. When white folks call me resilient, it's, you know what, we tried to kill you, but you're still here. Congratulations. And I want to get past that. And by all means, for people who are in that space where it's like, yo, I'm in that space where I'm taking it minute by minute. I, I want to get to resilience. Baby, do that. But what I can tell you that no one told me is that there was something past resilience. Mm -hmm. 
You understand what I'm saying? Imagine you being hungry, starving in the woods, and somebody says, you know what, there's a bologna sandwich there. And they know that past the bologna sandwich is a five-course meal. That's a steak and so on and so forth. Imagine that. That's what it feels like to me. It's like, yes, that, that sandwich is going is going to get me by. But this meal that helps me not all, because when you eat that meal, you're going to reach a point where you get full. And if somebody's next to you, you'll pass them some be like here. That's what thriving does is that right. we get ours, we get satiated. And then we do that beautiful work of multiplying it and putting it out within our people. And I also believe that's another reason why when we look at black folks and people try to make it seem like, oh, well, why don't they come together? Because they keep us in a space where we have to be resilient, meaning a space where we are from a space where we are never we never have too much. We maybe only have enough or we always have too little. So even if I even if I know I got a full plate, I'm going to put something to the side because I don't know what's going to happen. Right. I, I feel like that's what resilience as a theory breeds. And when it comes to youth. I don't know anything stronger than a child. Mm. You understand what yes. I'm saying? And I believe that children start off thriving. I think we slowly take away from them and then they become resilient. And then it's whatever, what's ever below resilient. Right. I, when children, children fight just to come into the world, right? There's this thing, there's power in that. And, and having had the privilege of, um, my incarceration really took me out the world, of course, but really those moments where you have friends, where you kind of see their, their children from birth on. I didn't have those in my 30s, early, th you know, my 20s or early 30s. And so I've been able to watch friends with their babies that are now five or six now. And I keep looking for that moment when 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 does somebody say something to this child to make them not feel like they can be Superman yes. or super person? Mm -hmm. It happens. And and when that happens, I believe we plant the seed of just 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 be resilient. Let that be big enough for you. And and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we can make when we're working with young people. Absolutely. And so speaking of young people, talk to talk to me about how your work, the work that you do, not just at Black and Pink, but I just know that you're everywhere. Music, design, everything. How does your work help to reimagine youth work? I think I think a common thread through all of my work, because uh, people will look at like my thing and be like, well, what do you do? I'm like, I do what makes me happy. And sometimes that's being an ED. Sometimes that's in the studio recording an album. And sometimes that's, you know, you know, hosting a fashion show. What what brings me liberation is what I do. And I think. A part of that 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 affects the youth work is. I own my story. I own my journey and I own my future. And there's this idea with young people that they don't get to be the steward of their lived experience until they're 18, 19. And I feel that's too late. You don't you 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 wait until you put this person in the world for them to be in the position to make the decisions and 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 help make kind of curate what they want their lives to look like. I'm like that's too late. Um, and, and so what I talk about a lot with young people is what, what is your story? Who are you? What have you seen? Lived experience is valuable, whether it's five years or 50 years. You know, I grew up thinking, you know, I grew up, 
you know, old school, you know, seen, be seen and not heard and, you know, all these things. But you know, and I know some of the most profound things you, you will hear will come from a five-year-old and you'd be like, oh, Ain't that right? Because they because they don't have all the other foolishness around them. They just look they'll look at a pure situation and be like, oh, no, that's what that is. And you just be like, oh, goodness, I didn't even think that way. So. The power of story and the power of owning your story and the power of truly believing that no matter where you are now, that you can change that. Right. There were so many times I gave up as a kid because I believed that what I had was was the most that I would have. You know, people will ask me all the time, like, did you ever dream? You know, you'd be no. My wildest dream. I got out of prison at 27 with an associate's degree in culinary management. I wanted to maybe run a kitchen, a restaurant. I wanted to be able to get a car that was maybe like 10 years old. And I wanted to maybe go on a vacation one day. That was it. And so what I have access to now, the life I get to live, it's not even a wildest dream, but why not? Because it was, it was poured into me to like have these expectations that are far below really what your greatness can be. So when we talk about story, when we talk about narrative, it's about, I believe every story is great. Mm -hmm. Therefore, every child is great. And the, and, and, and you've seen it. The minute a kid believes their greatness, baby jumping over buildings in a single bound, you know, and, and, and I, that's the type of world I want to live in. Absolutely. So my next question, it's about, you know, the way that youth workers view systems. And we kind of talked about it earlier, but just, you know, lay it out for the people. <laughs> um, how should youth workers, and I mean, folks outside of, you know, these government systems, because, a lot of my audience, you know, they're, they work for mentoring organizations. They work for youth development organizations. Maybe they work in schools. Um, and I, can, I consider school a system, but we'll, we'll, we'll give them a pass. <laughs> um, but how should they be viewing how systems work? Well, first thing, you have to accept that you are part of the system. Um, like like that, you cannot take that standpoint of, oh, my God, that's so terrible over there and we don't do that. You may not do it at that degree, but once you become become a part of systems, black and pink is a part of a system. The minute we got an EIN, we became a part of the nonprofit industrial complex. And every day I bust my butt to to try to hold our hold us to a standard and 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 and, and pray that our values are exhibited in everything we do. But we made a choice to lean into that. Right. Therefore, I can't say, oh, my God, all these nonprofits are terrible. If that's the case, I wholeheartedly believe if, 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 if what a system is doing is too much, then you need to divest. So, so that's the first thing you have to do is you're not different, as in you're not a part of the system. Accept it. That's cool. That's fine. But then you have to then, then say, based on what you're seeing that triggers you or that feels uneasy to you, I also believe so many people mentor and get into youth work because they were a youth that was impacted or they had a brother or a sibling. Do not get into this work to try to fix your stuff. Say that. <laughs> do not do not use these children to work through your stuff. Don't. Um, be clear about why you're there. 
and be clear about what you want to do differently based on what you've seen that really doesn't reflect the type of person you want to be when it comes to people who work in systems. And be clear about your ability to change stuff because some of these systems are exactly who they want to be and will stay that way. You'll see an agency with a $10 million budget that will be confused about how they do diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, what you do is you take you take you take fifty thousand of that and you hire somebody to to incorporate it in your agency. And if you wanted that, you would do it. You don't want that, so just say that. So be so be re really aware about what is capable inside of the systems in which you work right. or volunteer with. And last but not least, know when to get out of the way. You don't have to be the answer for everything. None of us are the answer for everything. Mm -hmm. None of us are anyone's savior. And, and, and oftentimes that's the hardest thing to be like, I am not the tool for this task. Right. Um, especially when we're looking at young folks and you're just like, you see the overwhelming need that's out there. You see, we talk about mentoring, you know, how many folks, you know, the barriers to get folks to sign up. Well, some of the barriers, no shade for the EDs and, and HR people that may be listening, praise God. Some of the barriers are that y'all have some some foolish laws uh, and, and, and regulations uh, when it comes to people who have been system impacted. I've never signed up to be a mentor through any system because before I was in the position of privilege I have now, it was like, oh, well, we don't, we don't give people who have a criminal record they can't get through the system. Now, these same people now will say, well, we'll make an exception for you, which is fine and, fine and cool. But what about the person down the street that has their own story and their own journey and they're doing amazing things and they they will sit down and talk to these kids. Why aren't we dismantling the barriers for everyone to be seen as someone who can pour into other people? So I think that's the other pieces that and many of those rules and regulation perpetuates this dichotomy of white mentors, black and brown kids. Um, and, and, and I think that's problematic as well, because I think it's I think I think white folks in the work can do beautiful things and and the intention can be incredible. But I look back now and can't imagine what seeing a black queer man would have done for my life Absolutely. at 13, 14. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, and those are the things we have, again, are you the tool for the job, you know, and being okay with that. Those are, those are, yeah. you know, this could be a whole Ted talk in itself, but those are like the top ones. Yes. But you know what? I'm glad that you hit on that because that was my next question. I, I you know, again, I get, and this is the reason I'm doing this podcast. I get a lot of questions about, oh, well, you know, background checks and, you know, we want more volunteers. And and what's crazy is a lot of this conversation is specific to the need for more black men as mentors, right? So we have this whole discussion about how we need more black men to show up as mentors. We don't have the whole discussion about systemic racism and mass incarceration and over-policing and, you know, and then they get to our door and then we're like, yeah, but you know, there's a problem because of this and that. Right. Um, and so it always just, and, and you, you mentioned it when you talked about systems, right? Like we say we want these things, but then it's fully in our ability 
to take care of it. And we do not. Right. Um, and, and we will continue to complain and continue to write in that need statement. All of, the, <laughs> all of those things. Hello. Right. Um, but you hit it, you know, you hit it on the head. We have a lot of capable adults uh, in, in communities that just haven't been tapped. And it's mostly our problem as systems. And if everybody worked in tandem, I feel like we could address it. If funders was putting that language in the grants that they were putting out there, agencies was holding folks accountable. And then, when, and if the community was holding the agencies accountable to making it happen, instead of just saying like, oh, this is the way it is. No, everything can change. Any 10 years ago, queer people signing up for this stuff was a non-negotiable. Right, absolutely. And now... These these communities said, no, we're not doing that. These funders said, how what what does your inclusion of queer identities look like? And everybody shifted. There are a, a, a whole bunch of EDs who are some of the most homophobic, transphobic people you ever want to know. But they have those policies in place because there's a dollar attached to it. And because the communities they were trying to oppress got in a position to where they said, no, ma'am, no more. We ain't going to do it no more. So. It's possible. Oh, yes, it's possible. Um, and, 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 and that's when the game changing is going to happen. Right. Even more so, what I was thinking about when you're saying that is that for the person who's system impacted, who's trying to go through that process, there was a time when it took so much courage for me to tell someone I had been incarcerated mm. or, to, or to try something that may not happen for you when you've been let down so many times, right? You you finally feel good enough to be like, you know what, I'm going to put myself out there and then you get denied. So we also need to talk about what that does to the spirit of the person who applied, the person who wanted to come and make a change yeah. and step up for the babies in their communities. Y'all can't tell everybody who's out in the streets, who's gangbanging, I got air quotes going, that they should mentor kids when those same people couldn't come to your mentoring agency and apply to mentor a child. It, 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 it don't go together, beloved. So, so like it's, it, it has to happen Tori, because we're gonna continue to lose children and we're gonna continue to have our communities disintegrate. Um, and I don't think, I don't think we can handle it much longer. We definitely can't. We definitely can't. Our young people need us and we need to show up. So, with that said, what strategies would you give folks? People are looking for what can I do right now at my agency and my organization to to reimagine the work that I'm doing for young people? Do you have any strategies that you would want to share with folks? Seek critiques, not feedback. Find somebody who's going to tell you all the stuff you're not doing right. Find them. Because y'all find the people on the surveys all the time that'll be like, it's excellent, it's awesome. Yes, that mother who, who, who needs somebody to pick up their child while they go to work, this is a blessing to them. Find that person who was like, this ain't hitting the way I thought it was going to hit. And ask them why. Talk to these kids about what they would like to see that's not there. Stop turning in on yourself when you give critiques. Challenge yourself to turn outward. The amount of privilege and access that we have in these positions that we that we're in, we can take a few hits. But what I see over and over again is that anytime an agency gets feedback or a critique that doesn't feel good, they turn in on themselves. They discount the person that's saying it because blah, 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 blah. What I know to be true is that some people are just complainers. 
that don't mean that their complaint ain't valid. You feel me? So yeah. don't throw all of it away and figure out what's there. Start first of all. And and let the people that you are leading, the, the people that you want to serve lead how you show up. Mm-hmm. And, and and figure out what that looks like. If you're making a survey, are you really making sure that everybody has a way to fill this out? I'm in rooms so many times, and you are too. We will make assumptions of what people have access to, or we can just text this out. Well, what if people got a jitterbug and they ain't got text messaging on there? What are we going to do? You know, all the people who were just like, you know, we're going to send these kids home and they'll be able to learn on, on the internet. Who? You know what I'm saying? Like these assumptions, make sure that whatever route you choose to be able to collect information and data that can make you a better agency, every person that you would that you are serving, every person that needs to be heard has a way to engage. I think these strategic plans, these cannot be five and 10 year strategic plans. They can't. I'm tired. <laughs> if it takes you 10 years to implement something, girl, why are you there? Stop. Stop, niece. Your, 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 your vision, your, 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 your vision statement is what, what may take you 30, 40 years to do. Engaging around equity and inclusion shouldn't take you 10 years to make happen. So, so really looking at your, your, your strategic plans, invest the money in bringing someone to create a strategic plan for you around a specific topic. Everyone in your agency, they may do the work, but they're not an expert or they're so in, uh, like in, ingratiated in your agency that they may not feel safe enough to step back and even give y'all the critiques to say, we've been doing this wrong. Let's let's turn the ship this way. Bring in an outside facilitator. Bring in new eyes of people who have the, the complete intention of, 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 of strengthening your agency. And don't let the money dictate you. And and that's me saying it as a person. I know what I I gotta make sure payroll hit every two weeks. Right. You know, so I get it, but I believe, I have to believe that if I am doing my job, which is making sure that my staff feel safe, they feel seen, they feel poured into, that they that they that they understand that they can set boundaries and all these other things, that we are building a culture. That 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 is based on 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 servant leadership. That people will see that, and we will be funded to do the work we want. We, we that 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 has become essential. Um, what I what I what I don't like to see is when people shift. And they shift in ways that they never should have shifted. We see it a mile away. We've all seen an agency where you're just like, they doing what? Or you see that first poster from an agency and they just slap the rainbow on there and you'd be like, oh, 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 the girls are welcome here now. Okay. You know, like we know it. Stop letting the dollars dictate what you do, because at the end of the day, um, it's going to take you down a dark path. Um, So those are those are the top things. But I think that's strategic planning. If you want to do it, you have to plan it. It doesn't happen naturally. There needs to be steps. There needs to be a way to evaluate your plan. And and there needs to be one more. You might have to clean out your board. Please say say it for the people in the back. You you (laughs) might have to clean out your board because what I know to be true is that you can have an ED that's 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 gung ho staff that's in it 
And then you got that person that's been on the board for 40 years because they write this and this check, which is cute. And then they're the person that stops progress. And it's like, I love you, beloved. We will give you a plaque in here. We'll name a bench after you. But you got to go. You got to go. And with love. You feel me? So, so yeah. And so, so sometimes clean out your board. Look at just create a strength matrix for who you for what you the skills you want to have on your board and then find those people that 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 hold that space. We all know that, we, you know, we want people that can write up, bring in a few dollars and know somebody else that got a few dollars. I get it. Then make a guild. That's what a guild is for. Have them have, have them do a silent auction, this that, and the third. But the people who make votes, the people who are going to be the owners of the agency, because that's what the board is. You want them to own and stand behind these intentions that you're setting, that you say you want to live inside of your organization. You see me over here snapping. I'm I'm preach. It's Tuesday. It's not even a Sunday, but preach anyway. So, (laughs) my God, my God, listen. (laughs) So this is my last question to end this. I want to end on a beautiful note. I've been I'm going to be asking everybody the same question, which is in your freedom dreams. Right. And your freedom dream. What does the future of youth work look like? I don't think uh, the the future in my dream, children don't have to question that they are loved, that they are appreciated and they don't have to question whether they can do something. They just have to decide what they want to do. I think people don't get that. It's like it's two parts to that kind of action piece of you is that you got to decide you want to do it and you also got to believe you can do it. You know, as a singer, I've been on stage uh, so many times and I've sang a song over and over again. But if if I let in my mind say, oh, my God, I'm I'm a crack, I will crack. Right. A huge part of singing is the is that audacity. Um, I've been watching the Clark Sisters movie over and over again. Yes. When you watch when you watch Karen rear back and open her mouth, there's just a there's just a spirit of faith of what's going to happen and a belief that she can do that. Right. I want that type of I want is I want all kids walking around with that, and I want the adults in the community to understand our role in in supporting babies and being that and then it becomes reciprocal mm-hmm. is that we have adults who are getting on the way and then these young people come in and these young people are pointing into this next piece and then we'll be, then we'll all be all right um and it's not laced with whiteness it's 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 not laced with fear and it, it feels it, it, feel, it feels based in abundance I think the scarcity complex that we have now is what breeds this idea that the most we can ever be is resilient. So, so, so it, so it feels like abundance and it feels real black and it smells like cocoa butter and Stevie wonder like plays out of everybody's house as you walk down the street. That's beautiful. I'm just saying I take a vacation there right now, period. (laughs) Dominique, thank you so much. No problem. I really, I really appreciate you. Y'all, you have been listening to Dominique Morgan, executive director of Black and Pink. They are 
absolutely amazing. Please make sure that you visit our podcast website, reimagininghyouthwork.com, and click on the link there at the bottom that takes you to our community. We've established a community of youth workers, also called Reimagining Youth Work, where we are exchanging stories and resources. I will see y'all again in two weeks with another episode of Reimagining Youth Work.